Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 17 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Elizabeth Woodville, Chapter 1, Part 1. The 15th century is, above all other eras, remarkable for unequal marriages made by persons of royal station. Then, for the first time since the reigns of our Plantagenets commenced, was broken that high and stately etiquette of the Middle Ages, which forbade King or Kaiser to mate with partners below the rank of princesses. In that century, the marriage of the handsome Edward IV with an English gentlewoman caused as much astonishment at the wondrous archery of Dan Cupid, as was fabled of old. When he shot so true, that king, Cofatua, wed the beggar maid. But the mother of Elizabeth Woodville had occasion scarcely less wonder in her day, when, following the example of her sister-in-law, Queen Catherine, she, a princess of Luxembourg by birth, and as the widow of the warlike Duke of Bedford, the third lady of the realm, chose for her second helpmate another squire of Henry V, Richard Woodville, who was considered the handsomest man in England. After the death of Henry V, Woodville entered the service of the Duke of Bedford, on whose death he was employed to escort the young widow, who was but seventeen, to England, where she was dowered on the royal demesnes. The Duchess of Bedford's marriage was kept secret full five years. Its discovery took place about the same time as that of the Queen with Owen Tudor, and certainly the Duke of Gloucester, though his own love affairs were quite as astounding to the nation, must have thought his two sisters-in-law had gone distracted with love for squires of low degree. What scandals, what court gossip, must have circulated throughout England in the year of grace, 1436. The Duchess's dower was forfeited in consequence of her marriage with Woodville, but restored on her humble supplication to Parliament, through the influence of her husband's patron, Cardinal Beaufort. Grafton Castle was the principal residence of the Duchess. Probably Elizabeth Woodville was born there, about 1431, some years before the discovery of her parents' marriage. Her father, Sir Richard Woodville, was one of the English commanders at Rowan, under the Duke of York, during that prince's regency. After the death of the unfortunate Queen Mother Catherine, and that of the Queen Dowager Joanna, the Duchess of Bedford became for some time, in rank, the first lady in England, and always possessed a certain degree of influence in consequence. Her husband was in the retinue sent to escort Margaret of Anjou to England. He was afterwards rapidly advanced at court, 
made baron, and finally Earl of Rivers, and the Duchess of Bedford became a great favorite of the young queen. The Duchess was still second lady in England, yet her rank was many degrees more exalted than her fortune. Therefore, as her children grew up, she was glad to provide for them at the court of her friend, Queen Margaret. Her eldest daughter, the beautiful Elizabeth Woodville, was appointed maid of honor to that queen, little deeming that she was one day to fill her place on the English throne. While yet in attendance on her royal mistress, she captured the heart of a brave knight, Sir Hugh Johns, a great favorite of Richard, Duke of York. Sir Hugh had nothing in the world wherewithal to endow the fair Woodville, but a sword whose temper had been proved in many a battle in France. He was, moreover, a timid wooer, and, very impolitically, deputed others to make to the beautiful maid of honor the declaration of love which he wanted courage to speak himself. Richard, Duke of York, was protector of England when he thus, in regal style, recommended his landless vassal to the love of her who was one day to share the diadem of his heir. To Dame Elizabeth Woodville, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you. For as much as we are credibly informed that our right hearty and well-beloved knight, Sir Hugh John, for the great womanhood and gentleness approved and known in your person, ye being sole, single, and to be married, his heart wholly have, wherewith we are right well pleased. How be it of your disposition towards him in that behalf, as yet is to us unknown. We therefore, as for the faith, true and good lordship, we owe unto him at this time, and so will continue. We desire and heartily pray ye will on your part, be to him well willed to the performing of this, our writing and his desire, wherein ye shall do not only to our pleasure, but, we doubt not, to your own great weal and worship in time to come, certifying that if ye fulfill our intent in this matter, we will and shall be to him, and you such lord as shall be to both, your great weal and worship, by the grace of God, who proceed and guide you in all heavenly felicity and welfare. Written by Richard, Duke of York. Even if Elizabeth's heart had responded to this earnest appeal of her lover's princely master, yet she was too slenderly gifted by fortune to venture on a mere love match. She probably demurred on this point, and avoided returning a decisive answer, for her delay elicited a second letter on the subject of Sir Hugh's great love and affection. This time it was from the pen of the famous Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. It is not written as if by a stranger to a stranger, at the same time, by his promises of good lordship, patronage, to Elizabeth and her lover, it is very evident he considers himself as the superior of both. To Dame Elizabeth Woodville, worshipful and well-beloved, I greet you well, and forasmuch my right well-beloved Sir Hugh John, knight, which now late was with you unto his full great joy, and had great cheer, as he saith, whereof I thank you, hath informed me how that he hath, for the great love and affection that he hath unto your person, as well as for the great sadness, seriousness, and wisdom that he hath found and proved in you at that time. As for your great and praised beauty, and womanly demeaning, he desireth with all haste, 
to do you worship by way of marriage, before any other creature living, as he saith. I, considering his said desire, and the great worship that he had, which was made night at Jerusalem, and after his coming home, for the great wisdom and manhood that he was renowned of, was made knight marshal of France, and after knight marshal of England, unto his great worship, with other his great and many virtues and desert, and also the good and notable service that he hath done and daily doth to me. Write unto you at this time, and pray you effectuously, that ye will the rather, at this my request and prayer, to condescend and apply you unto his said, lawful and honest desire, wherein ye shall not only purvey, provide, write notably for yourself unto your weal and worship, profit and honor, in time to come, as I hereby trust, but also cause me to show unto you such good lordship, patronage, as ye by reason of it shall hold you content and pleased, with the grace of God, which everlastingly have you in his bliss, protection and governance. Written by the Earl of Warwick. No one can read this epistle without the conviction that the great Earl of Warwick had some ambition to become a matchmaker as well as a kingmaker. Nevertheless, Sir Hugh met with the usual fate of a lover who has not the spirit to speak for himself, and deputes his wooing to the agency of friends. He was rejected by the fair Elizabeth. He married a nameless damsel, and in the course of time died possessor of a single manor. A far different destiny was reserved for the lady of his love. The foregoing letters could not have been written till 1452, Elizabeth was that year twenty-one, and she was then, as Richard of York says, soul and to be married. That is, she was single and disengaged, a remarkable crisis of her life, when in her maiden beauty she was eagerly wooed by the avowed partisans of the pale and the purple rose. Some worldly considerations, besides her duty to her royal mistress, Queen Margaret, seem to have led Elizabeth to reject the Yorkist partisan, Sir Hugh Johns, and accept the hand of the heir of the illustrious and wealthy lordship of Ferrers of Groby, a cavalier, firmly attached to the house of Lancaster. The time is not distinctly specified of the marriage of Elizabeth Woodville with John Gray. It probably took place soon after her rejection of the Yorkist champion. This wedlock was certainly a great match, for the penniless maid of honor, for it was equal to several of the alliances of the Plantagenet princesses. John Gray was son and heir to Lord Ferrers of Groby, possessor of the ancient domain of Bradgate, which was hereafter to derive such luster from being the native place of Elizabeth's descendant, Lady Jane Gray. Bradgate was Gray's patrimony, by reason of his descent from the proudest blood of our Norman nobility. Tradition declares that this was a most happy marriage, although Elizabeth and Gray must have been frequently separated by the ferocious contest between York and Lancaster, which commenced directly after their union. An adventure connected with the struggle for the crown in the last stormy years of Henry the Sixth reign placed young Edward Plantagenet, then Earl of March, and Earl Rivers, the father of Elizabeth, in extraordinary collision. The Earl of Rivers, 
and his son sir anthony ardent partisans of lancaster were fitting out ships at sandwich by orders of queen margaret in order to join the duke of somerset's naval armament in fourteen fifty eight at this time sir john dinham a naval captain in the service of warwick made a descent at sandwich and surprising the earl of rivers and his son in their beds carried them prisoners to calais how they were received there william paston shall tell in one of his letters to a norfolk knight his brother to my right worshipful brother be this letter delivered as for tidings the lord rivers was brought to calais and before the lords by night with eight score torches and there my lord of salisbury rated him calling him knave's son that such as he should be so rude as to call him and these other lords traitors for they should be found the king's true liegemen when such as he should be found a traitor and my lord of warwick rated him and said his father was but a little squire brought up with king henry v and since made himself by marriage and also made a lord and it was not his part to have held such language to those who were of king's blood and my lord march rated him likewise and sir anthony woodville was likewise rated for his language by all the three lords all this rating seems to have been the denouement of some old quarrel at court with the earl of march as the duke of york had not yet claimed the crown but only the right of succession his son dared not take the lives of henry the sixth subjects in cold blood therefore the woodvilles escaped with the payment of ransom edward lord ferrers the father-in-law of elizabeth died december eighteenth fourteen fifty seven the distraction of the times was such that her husband had no opportunity of taking his place as lord ferrers in the house of peers he was then twenty-five handsome brave and manly the leader of queen margaret's cavalry and an ardent and faithful partisan of her cause elizabeth had brought her husband two sons one born just before the death of lord ferrers was named thomas the other name was richard these children were born at bradgate which during the lifetime of her lord was the home of elizabeth there is reason to believe that Elizabeth followed her lord in the campaign which Queen Margaret made in 1460. Prevost states that previously to the Second Battle of St. Albans, Queen Margaret persuaded Elizabeth to visit Warwick's camp, under pretense of requesting some little favor or assistance for herself, as it was known that the stout earl was very partial to her. But in reality, Elizabeth acted as a spy for her royal mistress. Elizabeth's husband, Gray, Lord Ferrers, commanded the cavalry of Queen Margaret during that furious charge which won the day for Lancaster, at the Second Battle of St. Albans. The Red Rose was, for a brief space, triumphant, but the young victorious leader died of his wounds the 28th of February, 1461, and his beautiful Elizabeth was left desolate. Fortunately, her mother was near the army, if not with Queen Margaret several chroniclers declare that henry the sixth knighted elizabeth's husband at the village of colney therefore gray must have survived the battle a rancor so deep and deadly was cherished against the memory of elizabeth's gallant husband that his harmless infants the eldest not more than four years old were deprived of their inheritance of bradgate and elizabeth herself 
remained a mourning and destitute widow in her native bowers of Grafton, at the accession of Edward the Fourth. The mother of Elizabeth was a diplomaste of most consummate ability, insomuch that the common people attributed her influence over the minds of men to sorcery. The manner in which she reconciled herself to young Edward, when she had so lately been aiding and abetting Queen Margaret, after the stormy scene that had occurred between that prince and her lord and son at Calais, and after her son-in-law had by his valor almost turned the scale of victory against the house of York, is really unaccountable. But the effect of her influence remains in no equivocal terms on the issue rolls of Edward's exchequer. In the first year of his reign, there is an entry declaring that the king affectionately considering the state and benefit of Jaquetta, Duchess of Bedford, and Lord Rivers, of his especial grace, not only pays her the annual stipend of her dower, 333 marks, four shillings and a third of a farthing, but actually pays 100 pounds in advance, a strong proof that Edward was on good terms with the father and mother of Elizabeth three years before he was ostensibly the lover of their daughter. Is it possible that the fair widow of Sir John Grey first became acquainted with the victor, in the depths of her distress, for the loss of her husband, and that Edward's sudden passion for her induced his extraordinary profession of affection for her mother and father, who were, till the death of Sir John Grey, such staunch Lancastrians? If this singular entry in the issue rolls may be permitted to support this surmise. Then did the acquaintance of Elizabeth and Edward commence two or three years earlier than all former histories have given reason to suppose. Whatever be the date of this celebrated triumph of love over sovereignty, tradition points out precisely the scene of the first interview between the lovely widow and the youthful king. Elizabeth waylaid Edward the Fourth in the forests of Whittlebury, a royal chase, when he was hunting in the neighborhood of her mother's dower castle at Grafton. There she waited for him, under a noble tree, still known in the local traditions of Northamptonshire, by the name of the Queen's Oak. Under the shelter of its branches, the fair widow addressed the young monarch, holding her fatherless boys by the hands, and when Edward paused to listen to her, she threw herself at his feet, and pleaded earnestly for the restoration of Bradgate, the inheritance of her children. Her downcast looks and mournful beauty not only gained her suit, but the heart of the conqueror. The Queen's Oak, which was the scene of more than one interview between the beautiful Elizabeth and the enamored Edward, stands in the direct tract of communication between Grafton Castle and Whittlebury Forest. It now rears its hollow trunk, a venerable witness of one of the most romantic facts that history records. If the friendly entry in the issue rolls be taken for data of Elizabeth's acquaintance with Edward the Fourth, he became acquainted with her soon after the Battle of Towton. Thus she was little more than twenty-nine, when she first captivated him, and her delicate and modest beauty was not yet impaired by time. Edward tried every art to induce Elizabeth to become his own on other terms than as the sharer of his regal dignity the beautiful widow made this memorable reply. My liege, I know I am not good enough to be your queen, but I am far too good to become your mistress. She then left him to settle the question in his own breast, 
for she knew he had betrayed others, whose hearts had deceived them into allowing him undue liberties. Her affections, in all probability, still claved to the memory of the husband of her youth, and her indifference increased the love of the young king. The struggle ended in his offering her marriage. The Duchess of Bedford, when she found matters had proceeded to this climax, took the management of the affair, and, pretending to conceal the whole from the knowledge of her husband, arranged the private espousals of her daughter and the king. In the quaint words of Fabian, the marriage is thus described. In most secret manner, upon the 1st of May, 1464, King Edward espoused Elizabeth, late being wife of Sir John Grey which spousals were solemnized early in the morning at the town called Grafton, near to Stony Stratford, at which marriage was none present but the spouse, Edward, and the spousess, Elizabeth, the Duchess of Bedford, her mother, the priest and two gentlewomen, and a young man who helped the priest to sing. After the spouse, the king again rode to Stony Stratford, as if he had been hunting, and then returned at night and within a day or two the king sent to lord rivers father to his bride saying that he would come and lodge with him for a season when he was received with all due honour and tarried there four days when elizabeth visited him by night so secretly that none but her mother knew of it and so the marriage was kept secret till it needs must be discovered because of princesses offered as wives to the king there was some obloquy attending this marriage how that the king was enchanted by the Duchess of Bedford, or he would have refused to acknowledge her daughter. In the course of the summer of 1464, the king's marriage was discussed at court, though he yet delayed its public acknowledgment. His great desire was to prove to his peers that Elizabeth, being a descendant of the House of Luxembourg, was as worthy to share his throne as her mother was to marry the brother of Henry V. With this idea, he sent an embassy to his ally Charles, Count of Charlois, asking him to induce some of the princes of the House of Luxembourg to visit England, and claim kindred with his wife. From the remarks Monstrelet makes on this head, it may be gathered that the princes of Luxembourg had wholly forgotten and lost sight of the mother of Elizabeth. It is certain that they had been incensed at her marriage with Richard Woodville, for he says, Richard was the handsomest man in all England, and Jacquetta was an exceedingly handsome gentlewoman. Yet they never could visit the continent, or her brother Count Louis St. Paul would have slain them both. Jacquetta was gradually forgotten, till the extraordinary advancement of Elizabeth, and the message of her royal lord revived the remembrance of her Flemish relatives, and the Count of Charlois sent word, that the coronation of Elizabeth would be attended by her kindred. Of all persons, the marriage of Elizabeth gave the most offense to the mother of Edward the Fourth. This lady, who had assumed all the state of a queen, before the fall of her husband, Richard, Duke of York, at Wakefield, was infuriated at having to give place to the daughter of a man who commenced his career as a poor squire of ordinary lineage. Among other arguments against her son's wedlock was that the fact of Elizabeth being a widow ought to prevent her marriage with a king, since the sovereignty would be dishonored by such bigamy. The king merrily answered, She is indeed a widow, and hath children, and by God's blessed lady, I, who am but a bachelor, have some too. 
Madam, my mother, I pray you be content, for as to the bigamy, the priest may lay it in my way, if ever I come to take orders, for I understand it is forbidden to a priest, but I never wist it was to be a king. This is the version King Edward's courtiers chose to give of the conversation, but there is little doubt the Duchess of York reproached her son with the breach of his marriage contract with Elizabeth Lucy, the predecessor of Elizabeth Woodville in the affections of Edward. Bitterly was this perfidy afterwards visited on the innocent family of the royal seducer. Edward was likewise supposed to be married to Lady Eleanor Butler, the daughter of the great Earl of Shrewsbury. Possibly this was a betrothment entered into in Edward's childhood. End of section 17Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.